Thank you for listening to our Spectator podcast. Before you start, I'm happy to announce that we have a new Spectator Christmas subscription offer over the festive period. Subscribe to the Spectator for yourself or for a loved one this Christmas, and you'll receive a copy of the magazine and full online access for £99 for one year. That's £50 off the normal rate. Plus, you'll receive a free bottle of Paul for your troubles. To access the offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash champagne. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson, and this is our Christmas special, the subject of which is Christmas specials, specifically Christmas TV specials of the 1970s, and 70s TV in general. Only one possible guest for this episode, and it is Dr Tim Stanley, cultural historian familiar to readers of the Daily Telegraph, many other publications, and the only person who doesn't talk bollocks on Thought for the Day. Tim was born in the 1980s, so he missed 70s television the first time round, but I think it's fair to say that very few people are so deeply immersed in this fascinating world. Oh yes, very much so. Partly because a lot of these shows were repeated in the 1990s, So for those of us who are of that generation who have lived at the end of television's domination, we experienced the the second run of all of these shows. So Christmas for me growing up was repeats in the early afternoon of The Two Ronnies and Are You Being Served and Dad's Army. Well, you experienced these shows as historical documents. I was there when they aired, sitting on the Thompson family sofa, which we called a city, as a lot of people did in those days. And if I was in good odour with my parents, which wasn't often perhaps enjoying a slice of barely thawed bee jam strawberry cheesecake, which was a great delicacy at the time, it was, of course, an era of considerable political disruption in Britain. Though I sometimes think that you millennials paint slightly too dystopian a picture, imagining there were power cuts every five minutes and that the three-day week lasted for about 15 years. And every winter was discontented. Though there were power cuts, I remember an episode of The Generation Game, an excruciating bit of pre-scripted comedy banter between Bruce Forsyth and Anthea Redfern, in which Brucey told Anthea, who, who was then his wife, that there were going to be power cuts during the week. And she said, oh, that's okay, darling, we can listen to our lovely stereo instead. And Bruce had to explain that actually power cuts didn't just mean no telly. Although I think for a lot of Britons, power cuts did primarily mean no telly because television was so important. And when I say that 1970s television, and especially Christmas television, was inspiring as well as cheesy. That's a fair point, isn't it? It is, it is. I, I think, particularly for my generation, it's a, it's a throwback to a Christmas that seems to have been simpler, cheaper, and a bit happier than ours. I, it, it's always, one must always remember that Christmas was always better in the past, partly because we experienced it when we were younger, therefore it seemed better. But it's also reasonable to say that Christmas has become heavily commercialised and a period in British history 
uh, which had commercialization, but everyone didn't really have the money to enjoy it. It was bound to be was bound to be, I think, a little more improvised and fun. And one of the things I love about the look of the 70s on TV is its cheapness and its tackiness, but also its affordability. I love how the newsreaders would have those Christmas trees sprayed white with nasty silver tinsel on them. Well, affordability is right. I seem to remember Christmas was always the season of KTEL, a marketing company that sold you things that you didn't know you needed and actually in some cases definitely didn't. For example, I remember a contraption for making wine glasses or or any sort of glass, tumblers for your kids, out of empty bottles, empty milk bottles or empty bottles of Blue Nun or whatever. All you had to do was drag a viciously sharp steel wire across the bottom of the bottle and, hey, presto, you had a new wine glass, tumbler, whatever, which was great so long as you were prepared to cut your lips to shreds every time you drank from it. Wonderful, wonderful. And likewise, Blue Peter always used to be about making Christmas cards. I, I, if the, pl- the programme is still even on, I don't know if they're doing that anymore, but such was, such was my childhood. It was all about glue and glitter and, and sticking things together. And, and, and a few days ago, I, I actually watched, this is incredibly sad, I watched a Fanny Craddock Christmas special. And she's there with her cheapo little gas oven and this enormous turkey. Treating that turkey, even though it was dead, the turkey looked terrified of Fanny Craddock. And did Johnny look terrified as well? <laughs> are you aware, now this is a bit like telling somebody that there's no Father Christmas, but are you aware, Tim, that she wasn't actually married to Johnny at the time? Yes, no, I, I am aware of this. And, and she had a fascinating Gosh. background. Yes, she wasn't nearly as, as prim and proper as the eyeliner. Well, they never are, are they? No, no, <laughs> no. she was the Joan Crawford of 70s cooking. But let's go back to Blue Peter, which did Christmas very well, I thought, particularly during the golden era, which you couldn't watch on repeat, Tim, of Val, John and Pete. So in the four episodes before Christmas, there would be something called, I think, the the Blue Peter Advent Candle, which I'm pretty sure consisted of two coat hangers strung together and candles attached to it, and in the consecutive episodes before Christmas, they'd be lit one after the other, as you'd expect, and... uh, I think Val often lit the final candle and then you knew Christmas had really arrived and our saviour was about to be born, though they omitted that last detail. The kind of dangerous thing you could make at home. But I I think there's a serious point that the the, the 70s uh, arrives at a moment of the fruition of of industrial democracy in Britain. That sounds incredibly pretentious. You have this, you have in culture this alliance of the hangover of the old imperial order, the public school people like Frank Muir running the BBC or David Attenborough. But you also have a conscious attempt to appeal to the people and to the masses. So the kind of programmes that they are commissioning are incredibly populist and a lot closer to the kind of Brexit voting spirit of today um, than a lot of what the BBC currently produces. Now, so I, I appreciate On the Buses is, of course, ITV, a lot of ITV's output was a lot more working class, but nothing of that, I, 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 apart from things like Gavin and Stacey, I struggle to think of a comparison today of that kind of sitcom, which is, is working class, it's about people who work with their hands or in the service industries, and it's about family, big, 
big families, traditional families. Well, perhaps I could I just offer my own little Swedish sociological take on it, which is I think what you saw with, with Morecambe and Wise and many other you know, Christmas specials is that these were basically the working class variety acts yes. of the 1930s and 40s, Morecambe and yes. Wise. Um, these were people who'd spent their lives in you know, boarding houses, um, appearing in, in small theatres on the variety circuit, which, is, which was a small world, a working class world, or a world in which, you know, if you were successful, there was money. And this was, but, you know, there were some extraordinary talents there, um, as well as some less extraordinary talents. <laughs> um, yes. More common buyers, but also little and large. Um, and um, Canon and Ball, both of whom are evangelical Christians these days. But anyway, my point is, and they were later, my point is that Morecambe and Wise represented that generation who, thanks to television, reached a really big audience in the late 60s, early 70s. And it was an audience of the whole country. So it was a moment at which people from a working-class background, Morecambe and Wise, working-class showbiz, a rather specific thing, but nonetheless, and there's a whole load of them. You know, Eric Sykes. I, I don't know. One could one could one could make an enormous long list of people from that background. Some of the people who are in Dad's Army were able to connect with the whole of the British public, not yeah. just you know the folk who turned up for their shows. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely, absolutely, and. You you get all of that coming together in a, in a classic like Are You Being Served, which uh, you can almost read now as a sociological textbook of the 1970s, because there's this very conscious attempt to represent all of Britain very brilliant, brilliantly in a, a slightly decaying and fraying department store, where you have the, these fascinating class relations. You have uh, you have the caretaker who represents the bolshy working class because he's always refusing to do anything. Uh, unless he's paid, otherwise he'll go on strike. You have within the, the staff working on the floor this extraordinary social order that, that runs from uh, the, the young Trevor Bannister character who's at the bottom. Right and there, there, of course, who wasn't actually that young. I mean, he was dressed as a lad, but I mean, he'd been, I'm afraid he's been long gone. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, they're all dead now. And, the, and, the, and, you, ha and you have the, the, the characters uh, who, whose position within the social order is slightly precarious. So uh, Mrs Slocum... Uh, we'll, we'll had had this wonderful trick. Molly Sutton had this wonderful trick of say, of speaking very very posh and then suddenly talking dead common. Well, it was specifically northern posh. It was, oh hello, madam, how can I help you? And then who does she think she is? Stuck up cow. Yes, and, and, and then at the very top of the social ladder, you have young Mr. Grace. Uh, well done, everybody. You've all done. Yes. yes, he was so decrepit that it was rather difficult to tell exactly how posh he was. There was, of course, yes. old Mr. Grace. Um, I, I think in the first episode, young Mr. Grace appears. Oh, we're all doing jolly well. And they said, that's young Mr. Grace. Old Mr. Grace doesn't get about so much these days. <laughs> <laughs> Harold Bennett, he was called, was he not? That's the actor? right. That's right. He lived for quite a long time after the series. But here's something I wanted to ask you. Tim, you've mentioned Are You Being Served as an example of 1970s television at its most you know, significant and inventive. But actually what I remember is it going off pretty damn quickly. It was... It was, I think, a one-off in Comedy Playhouse. And then it had its first series, which was very good, in which somebody else played the caretaker. It wasn't Arthur English. And then it went off as it sent itself up and the 1980s intruded. 
Yes. So Mrs. Slocum's hair got more and more ridiculous. The pussy jokes became just tedious, completely inescapable. Yes. And every episode became a sort of holiday special in itself in which they all had to dress up in fancy dress, which, as far as I recall, wasn't the sort of thing that happened in 1970s department stores very often. No, no, I, I, I don't want to suggest that it lost its realism as though it had a great deal to begin with. But I, No, I but it did have some realism. And it, whatever realism it had, it completely lost. And, and, and that's partly to do with the show just going on too long, but I do think it's also something But it's also to do... the spirit of the 80s, yes. I think, because that... That England, the England of that department store, and there was one in Reading, I've forgotten its name now, but, 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 which, which really was exactly like that. And by the early 80s, those stores had ceased to exist. They closed right, left and centre. Yes, yes. And yes. a slightly different light entertainment crowd, the sort of Timmy Mallet-style crowd, were in charge of yes. British television. And so they decided, well, we've got this old war horse, we'll just play it for laughs. I mean, play it for slightly sort of sneering and cheap laughs. Yes. And, 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 in, and in some ways, they, they are satirising the past. And what you also see in the 80s is the the arrival of shows which are about the audience's youth so you, you so there are there are things like Allo Allo which was a parody of Secret Army and is, is about the French resistance in the war which is just the best ever British statement about foreign relations ever made um, and, yes and, and, Secret and, Army was pretty good by the way and and Heidi High uh, which is yeah. about 1950s camps which is sort of the follow-on social experience from the war and if you think about it, a good point about the age, because, I mean, Trevor Bannister, God knows how old he was, but he, you know, he was sort of playing an office boy, but, I mean, he must have been late 30s or 40 or something like that. <laughs> you wouldn't, that wouldn't happen now. Almost everybody in the department store, except for a joke old character, would be under 40. Yes, well, and also most of them would be born from abroad. Well, they'd have to be, otherwise it would look nothing like modern Britain. On the other hand, you wouldn't be able to make any sort of joke that even hinted at a stereotype, so, yeah. Probably best not to bother. I wanted to ask you about smut, which isn't a word that you hear very often these days, but you certainly did in the 70s, this, you know, so-called golden age of British television. Because it really was just about everywhere. Dirty jokes were ubiquitous. And that was a problem, you know, not just for Mary Whitehouse, but for all sorts of people. I mean, if you look at, for example, the difference between the first carry-on film Carry On Sergeant in 1959, something like that. It's basically an alien comedy. But by the time the series ended, after Sir James's death, you know, those films were getting pretty close to actual porn. They are. And, and actually, even things like Carry On Loving um, and uh, Carry On Abroad as well uh, is, is just obscene, uh, where the, the entire plot really is Sir James trying to get his end away. I mean, it's, it's so unpleasant. Um, but I don't remember them being filthy when I was young. Well, if it's got Sir James in it, it can't be any later than 1976, because that was when the poor man died on stage in a play, and the audience thought it was a gag, as they always do. And the same thing happened to poor old Tommy Cooper, who died in front of you know, millions of people on television. And gosh, I wish I'd never watched it. Oh, no, I never want to watch it. No, light entertainment snuff. I'm not going to watch that. Thank you very much. But I, 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 you make a very good point, which is we mustn't misremember what uh, the culture was like in the 70s. And actually, as part of that fruition of working class culture and that attempt by uh, the people at the top to appeal to the masses, as part of that, actually 70s TV could be surprisingly crude. And you watch some episodes of On the Buses, 
and the jokes now could not be told. The atmosphere now is both more censorious and rightly so respectful of women's rights. Um, so the sort of things that go on in the average episode of that, you, you couldn't have in a sitcom nowadays. You certainly couldn't. I'm trying to think of the sort of things that did happen in the average episode of On the Buses, which was also banned from the Thompson household. Well, uh, well OK, well, just... just to, to, I, wa I watched a few of them back-to-back. -back. I think they were playing on something like ITV Classic Gold 4 or something, and what was striking was that every episode was utterly clichéd, and it always had one simple, single plot that, like you said, is straight out of the music hall or out of silent comedy. So there was one episode in which they were redecorating the kitchen, and wouldn't you know, Olive gets caught up in the wrapping paper. There's another episode where they have to have a health check at their uh, workplace, as if so that ever happened, and they were all made to strip down to their underwear, which was the most horrific sight. It should have been banned for that alone. Good Lord, Olive too. No, no, no. Just this, this is just Reg Varney, who who oh, you right. talk about Trevor Bannister being over the hill. I think Reg Varney was in his fifties when he got cast in that role. <laughs> Very talented pianist, by the way. Was he a talented pianist? Of course, um, Blakey was an exceptionally devout Catholic. Right, and, uh, and a socialist. Um, I wanted to talk about the subject of religion in Christmas specials. It doesn't loom very large. There's a sort of assumption that this is a time of forgiveness and you discover the real meaning of Christmas without any mention of Christ. I was reading some interesting stuff on the internet about how difficult it's been for American companies to handle these Christmas specials. Because, of course, there's lots and lots of Jewish people involved. And so from time to time, somebody's actually made a list of the different ways they handle it. So from time to time, there'll be one character who celebrates Hanukkah, even though Hanukkah doesn't actually coincide with Christmas all that, I mean, exactly all that often, but it's close enough. But then no mention will be made of their Jewishness, their Jewish beliefs in any previous or, or subsequent episode. And as far as actual Christianity and Christmas specials are concerned... I think the Charlie Brown Christmas special would have Christianity in it because Schultz was a devout Christian. That, that was a revolutionary moment in TV, Charlie Brown's Christmas special, because actually up until that point, again, inverting everything we think about post-war culture, uh, TV makers in America were quite reluctant to dis openly discuss religious themes around Christmas prior to that. Charlie Brown really broke that taboo. Um, and, and made it possible for people to talk about religion again in that way on television at that time of year. Religion is never shoved down your throat in British 70s TV. Um, where it does appear, it's usually ornamental or a plot device. I mean, one thinks of um, Some Mothers Do Have Them with the Nativity episode. Uh, I can't remember how it ends, but every episode ends with Frank Spencer being hoist uh, by a crane. God, that was an unfunny show. I could never understand how a sitcom about a guy with obvious learning difficulties could become a cult classic. And if I can mention another Benoit of mine, it ain't half hot, Mom. I mean, how could people watch that dreck after the glories of Dad's Army? No idea. But we're talking about Christmas specials and the implicit Christianity of them, very implicit in some cases, Last night, I fell headlong into the abyss of Crossroads Christmas specials. This, the famously classy, long-running soap opera based in a Birmingham motel with 
notoriously shaky walls, dominated for many years by the figure of Noel Gordon, who played Meg Richardson, or Meg Mortimer, after her marriage, killed off very cruelly, and the actress died not long afterwards, which I always thought was very sad. But she was a ferocious figure, I think both in real life sometimes, and certainly in the show. But come Christmas tide, Meg would lighten up. And I read somebody on YouTube saying that Nolly, as she was always known, Nolly Gordon loved nothing better than breaking the fourth wall at the end of the Christmas episode, turning to the camera and singing. And actually, it was rather sweet. So if you don't mind, Tim, I'm going to try and recapture the spirit of 1970s Yuletide Fair with a very nolly Christmas. Please do. Oh, come on now, Meg. How about a song from you? Oh, yes, please. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Come on. Yes. All right, John. Clear of this. Bring out the holly. Light up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking. We may be rushing things, but deck the halls again now. For we need a little Christmas right this very minute. Candles at the window, carols at the spinet. Yes, we need a little Christmas right this very minute. It hasn't snowed a single flood. Santa dear, we're in a hurry. 